Well, as I'm getting set up here, um, just uh, for those of you who do not know, um, my name is Joshua Cahill, and um, I uh, am the middle of, of five children. I'm the only boy, which means I was the best one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, God has blessed me with a, a beautiful wife. Her name is Brianna, and... Um, I would not be where I am in ministry today without my wife. Uh, my, God has used my wife tremendously in my, wife, uh, in my life, sorry. and um, he's also blessed us with four um, beautiful blessings, as we like to call them. Um, yeah, it's okay to clap for my kids until you get to know them. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, before we dive into this topic that I believe the Lord laid on my heart, uh, I just wanted to say a couple of shout-outs, really. A couple of shout-outs to some very specific people. So one, um, I want you guys to please just give yourself a hand. But wait, wait till I tell you. Uh, give yourself a hand uh, for something very special. Uh, my wife and I have been attending church here for the last several weeks. And we have tried to stay very closed off uh, as to not give anything away that I would be speaking. And so we've been sitting back there in the, the corner um, back there. Uh, but I want you to know that this church, um, I have been in several churches, and, and this church has been the most welcoming church that we've ever been in. I, so give yourself a hand. And then secondly, uh, for the people who have been working behind the scenes for the last year, as you guys have not really had a pastor here, um, with the exception of Dan, and I'm going to get there in just a moment, but would you guys please uh, give, uh, give it up for Jessica and Kathy and Ben, the people who are making this, this work, and, and Chris, Chris as well, um, though, never mind, I'll go there a different day, I'll go there a different day, um, and then, uh, then if you would, please give it up for Dan, who's been here for the last several months as your intern. And though I did not have the pleasure of meeting uh, or connecting with the previous two pastors here at this church, um, how many of you have been here since the very beginning? And show of hands. Yeah, there's a, so let's give it up for Ed, who, who was the pastor here when the church started. And then, um, last but not least, Joel, the pastor who was here previously. Let's give it up. So, um, we're just going to dive in uh, pretty deep here this morning. So, I'm just going to ask if you would please just put on your spiritual seatbelts. Um, just, just right now, I want you guys to just reach next to you and just, you got to work with me here. Just put on your spiritual seatbelt. Perfect. Perfect. So, how many of you in here by a show of hands can tell me? Um, that you know of a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford. Anybody? Like, I appreciate you. I did not want to be the only person up here. Like, hey, I know who it is, yeah. So Horatio Spafford, once I begin to share with you his story, you will then understand and be like, oh, I know who that is. Maybe just not by name. So Horatio and his wife Anna lived in Chicago in the 1800s, late 1800s. Horatio was a businessman and a lawyer. He had business investments all around Lake Michigan. And it was in the late 1800s when the great Chicago fires broke out and burned nearly $2 million worth of property damage there. And in the 1800s, I mean, $2 million, was, well, that was a lot. 
The Spaffords lost all of their business investments, and the law firm was partially burnt to the ground. Now, his family's in this place of despair. He and his wife have four daughters, and they're in this place of despair and and depression. They don't really know what to do. They've lost all of their money. He doesn't know how he's going to support his kids and his wife, and so he decides that he is actually going to take a trip with the little money that they had saved, and they were going to go overseas to Europe because they were friends with a man by the name of D.L. Moody, a great theologian. And so they were going to go and see him, and they travel their way to New York, and he goes to board a ship that's going to take him and his family overseas, and he receives a telegram saying that he is needed back in Chicago. And so he sends his wife and his four daughters to go ahead. And he's like, I'm going to catch up with you as soon as I'm able. He heads back to Chicago. Anna and their four daughters, between the ages of two and 12, get on a ship and they head across the Atlantic Ocean. Several days into the the trip, their vessel is struck by another And in 12 minutes, the ship sank, and 226 people aboard that ship were killed, including all four of Horatio's daughters. His wife makes it to safety in Wales and sends a telegram back to Horatio in Chicago with two words. It says, saved alone. That's it. Horatio ends up doing everything that he can to get back to New York and get on the next ship to go over to Wales to meet his wife. And as he boards the ship, they begin to go. And they get to the place where the ship sank and his daughters were killed. And he was called by the captain to the bow of the ship. And he, he said, I believe this is the place and where your daughters lost their lives. And in that moment, Horatio is staring into the dark, watery grave where his daughters were killed. And he reminded himself as an evangelical Christian, of some absolute truths about God. And in that moment, he began to pen the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I believe Horatio is a prime example of what to do when you don't know what to do. There's going to be three things that we're going to take a look at this morning in our passage. And um, I'm going to give them to you. They're going to come up on the screen. I'm just going to forewarn you right now. um, I, I made Ben's job really easy, and I told him that he did not have to put all of my notes up there. And so we're actually going to open up God's Word this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to grab them, turn them on, and get them out. Um, it's okay if you have an electronic Bible. I don't have my iPad. I would have used that. <clears throat> so the first thing I want us to see before we dive too deep into this is the reach of despair. The reach of despair. Now despair is this overwhelming, suffocating sense that life is just not going to get any better at all. Now you, <clears throat> you may be in here this morning And maybe you've finally given up on your marriage. Like, it is what it is, and I'm just going to resign myself to the thought that it's just not going to get any better. And then you got this little glimmer of hope, right? Like angels just parted the heavens, and you've seen hallelujah because Dan was doing Restored, that, that marriage series that we had. And you're like, this is it. 
God is going to use this sermon series to restore my marriage. And you began to see, see things work, but then the series gets over and all of a sudden it just implodes and you're right back to where you started. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe you're in here and your job is going nowhere. You've been there for years, you haven't gotten a pay raise, you haven't gotten a promotion, you don't know what's going on, you don't know how you're going to support your family any longer. Or, or maybe it was just a dream, a dream that's been completely shattered Or maybe, just maybe, you thought and are thinking that you're never going to get victory over a sin or a temptation that you fall into for the millionth time. And you begin to come to the, the place where you just think to yourself, maybe I can't change. Maybe this is just who I am. Or maybe... You're in here and you're lonely because you've just lost a loved one or you're walking through a divorce or maybe you're single and you have no prospects whatsoever. And then you're in this place where there's just something wrong and I can't quite put my finger on it. There's this dark cloud over my life like I've been cursed And you're left with this sense of just spiritual vertigo. And you don't know what to do. And you don't know where to go. And you begin to succumb to bitterness and cynicism. Alcohol. Drugs. Thoughts of suicide. And one of the things that's popular in our culture is just to run to medication. Now... Anytime I speak on this topic, I have conversations with people and they ask that question. What about medication? Is it wrong to take medication? Should I take medication? Well, I will tell you this first. I'm not a licensed doctor. And even if I was, I could not make a generalized blanket statement that would apply to every single person in this room or the people right now that are watching online. It's not possible. But what I will tell you is this. God created us as a body-soul union. I will tell you that. And what I mean by that is that sometimes what's happening in the body will affect how you're feeling in your soul. And I believe that all of us can relate to this in some way. Um, I guess the easiest way for me to say it would be this. Have you ever found that when you don't get enough sleep, you don't act very sanctified? Like, you just wake up and you're just snapping at everybody about every single thing because you're tired, right? But here's the thing. Um, the answer to that question of, of, I didn't get enough sleep, so now I'm not acting very sanctified, is not just go do your quiet time, okay? Yes, go do your quiet time. Don't say the pastor said we don't have to read our Bible. No, no, no. <laughs> go do your quiet time, but after you've gotten sleep, Okay? And then you'll find that the both of them together actually help with the sanctification process. But here's the thing. While conditions in the body can aggravate spiritual conditions, it does not create them. Okay? Your physical body does not create idolatry. It doesn't. It does not create selfishness. It does not create unbelief. So I will end this on the medication rant. And if you have questions, you can come speak to me after. Medications can alleviate pain, but they cannot give you hope. 
Medications can alleviate pain, but they cannot give you hope. Amen? All right, thank you. Just want to make sure you guys are tracking with me this morning. Hope comes from somewhere completely different. It does not come from deadening anything. Somewhere else. Somewhere different. And so I want you to turn with me to the book of Lamentations. I want you to know that this has been the most difficult two weeks preparing this message. When God laid this on my heart, I was like, Lamentations, are you kidding me? Like, do you know what's going on? Of course God does, but I I felt like I needed to express that to him. So before we dive too deep into... um, Before we dive too deep into this, I want to give you a little context as to what's going on here. So, lamentations is just a fancy word for for lament. It's It's a collection of laments, and they're the laments of what theologians believe is the prophet Jeremiah. This book is written as five poems or songs, and it's very unique because each chapter follows the Hebrew alphabet, and it's acrostic. So, Each chapter is 22 verses because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, with the exception of chapter 3, which is what we would see as a a triple acrostic, so it's 66 verses, which means that three verses are to every one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, you may be asking yourself, why on God's green earth do I need to know that information except for maybe to have a correct answer in Bible trivial pursuit? (laughs) Well, here's why. People believe, theologians believe, I myself believe that Jeremiah gave us the triple acrostic in chapter 3 so that he could describe to us suffering from A to Z. Everything here, there's nothing left out in the type of suffering that happens. Now, you may be in here and you're like, why is Jeremiah suffering? What's going on? Well, Jeremiah lived during a time when Israel was being punished for their sin. They had hardened their hearts towards God time after time after time in this vicious cycle. And finally, God was allowing for them, just like he promised, to be exiled from their own homeland of Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah is sitting here, and he's witnessing violent, multiple violent deportations of friends and family to the Babylonians. He's watching it happen. He saw the destruction of the place in where he lived in Jerusalem. He even watched them witness He watched and witnessed them tearing down the very temple of God in Jerusalem. And then he's over here and he sees friends and family being carted off as slaves. And if you go back and actually read through the book of Lamentations, you'll even see that Jeremiah saw parents stoop as low as to cannibalism of their children because they were hungry. This is what's going on right now in Jeremiah's life. And God's like, guess what? Jeremiah, I want you to go, and I want you to prophesy over the people these things. And this is what he says. He's like, you're experiencing the judgment of God. Don't resist it. It's not going to, you're not going to see a leader raised up or a hero raised up to rescue you. Repent. Like, listen, that's not an easy message to preach to people, but that's what God gave Jeremiah to preach. It's not popular. And the people were like, well, Jeremiah, um, uh, he's committed treason, let's just throw him in the dungeons. And many believe that Jeremiah even wrote the book of Lamentations from the very dungeon in which he was in. 
So now that you have some some context, we're going to start in chapter 3, verse number 1. And it says this, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. That word driven there is like an animal. Like being beaten like an animal to the plow. This is not all the way my Savior leads me here. Okay? Jeremiah is like, I I feel like I'm being driven mercilessly. There's darkness. There's no light. I read an article probably about a year ago, maybe a little bit over that, about the failed mission of Ernest Shackleton to be the first man to, to trek his way across the South Pole. He took his team, they got in a ship, and they started to make their way there, and their, their ship actually got crushed in polar ice, and they were stranded for over a year. And as, as they began to interview Ernest as to what, uh, what they experienced, he said the hardest thing and the most difficult thing that we had to experience was not the starvation, not the polar ice cold, it was the darkness. What many people don't know is that in the South Pole, it goes dark in mid-May and the sun doesn't come up again until August. Months of darkness. There's no desolation like utter darkness. And that's what Jeremiah is experiencing. There's no light. I have no hope. And then he goes to verse 3 and he says, Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Who is Jeremiah talking about here? God. Jeremiah is talking to and about God. He then goes on to say, God has made my flesh and my skin waste away. God has broken my bones. God has besieged me and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. God has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. God has walled me about so that I cannot escape. God has made my chains heavy. And though I cry for help, God shuts out my prayer. Have you ever been there before? God not answering me. God, where are you? You, Me? Am I the only person in here that's ever been in that place? Jeremiah knows that that's not true, the things that he's saying about God, and he's going to show us that in just a few minutes. But it's how he feels right now in, in this moment. That's how he feels. And there are probably a lot of people right now in this room and even online that have gone through dark chapters in your life and you've thought these very things to yourself and you've shut yourself up because you said, I'm not allowed to feel that way because real Christians don't feel like that. Jeremiah was a real Christian. Jeremiah followed after the Lord. And then he he goes to verse number nine and he said, he has blocked my paths and with blocks of stone, and he has made my paths crooked. Every time I start to make a way out, God crushes it. And then he says in verse 10, he's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. Let me ask you this morning, what is your favorite image of God? Is it a bear waiting to maul and dismember you? I, I don't want to think about God like that. In verse 11, he says, He turned aside my steps and he tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bends his bow and he sets me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. 
and I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness, and he has sated me with wormwood. Wormwood is a bitter herb, and the New Testament is referred to as gall. And what the Hebrew people believed that wormwood represented was desolation or God's wrath. These were the two pictures here. And then Jeremiah goes to verse number 16. And he says, He has made my teeth grind on gravel, and he has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace, and I have forgotten what happiness is. I can't even remember joy in my life. I don't know what that's like. Despair has reached the furthest of depths in Jeremiah. But before I go on, <clears throat> sorry guys, before I go on, I need each one of us in this room to learn something. God chose to include this in the Bible. He could have edited this out. In fact, he could have chosen not even to put lamentations in there at all. Like, he could have been like, why don't we include another book by Zephaniah? Everyone loves his stuff, God dancing over people with love. Like, we want more of that. Or, or what about Solomon's wisdom? That's pretty hot. Why don't we just put another one of those books in there? No. No. God chose to place lamentations in the Bible for those who suffer. Why? Because he needs you to know that he knows how you feel. And he wants you to know that he knows how you feel. Just like Jeremiah you need to know that it's okay to express where you're at. In fact, I would tell you, you need to express where you're at. Do not bottle that up. Do not keep that to yourself. Share what you're struggling with. Share what you're going through. We are too entirely quick to give an answer with our think-positively Christian jargon. Too quick. But you want to know what? Sometimes we do not need theological reasoning. Sometimes we just need a God who's walking through the despair with us. The reach, the reach of despair. Which leads me to our second point this morning, the ramifications. The ramifications of despair. The reach and the ramifications. I want us to read in verse number 18 now. Jeremiah says, so I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope for the Lord. It's perished. It's gone. Jeremiah's despair has led him to a place of doubt. I, I doubt God can even fix this situation. There's no hope. It's over. Um... I'd like to share with you a story, and I'm going to hopefully get through this. I have some friends right now. Um, they're actually probably 
uh, watching online right now as we speak. Their names are Jeff and Nikki. They've been very good friends of my wife and I. They've been people who have walked alongside of us in ministry, who have helped us, who have prayed with us and for us. And I've stayed very close in contact with Jeff since we moved here. And um, just recently, Jeff uh, called me and it was like, I haven't told a lot of people this, but uh, he's like, my wife's in the hospital. Um, healthy, healthy lady, um, Nikki, and, and she's in the hospital. And they can't figure out what's going on. And they said it was one thing, and they sent her home, and she ended up having to come back, and it was actually a lot worse. And just multiple stays for multiple days in the hospital and having no contact with family because of COVID and hospital regulations. And so she's just alone in the hospital. And she's wasting away. She, she lost like some 20, 22 pounds plus in a matter of like less than two weeks or something like that. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. And multiple doctors, and, and even so much so where, where doctors messed up. And I remember having multiple conversations with Jeff, like late at night. And he's like, Josh, like, I don't know what's going on. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. My wife's hurting. I can't, I can't help. I don't know what to do. This is going on. My wife's in all this pain. She gets better and then she gets worse. She gets better and then she gets worse. To the place where she almost dies twice. Back to back. And I remember talking on the phone with him that night. One of those nights. And it was almost like a place of doubt. Now I, I, I believe wholeheartedly um, that Jeff was struggling. And I, I trust that Jeff knows and understands God's word because we've had multiple conversations about it. But there was a place of doubt where he was like, God, where are you? God, what's going on? Are you going to heal? Why? Why is this happening? Please. He told me, and he, he told me that I could share this. He told me that he begged of God, don't take my wife. And I realized something. I realized something in our conversations and in, in, in reading this passage of Scripture. All too often, we live in a quote-unquote church culture where a lot of people feel like they're not allowed to share their confusion and their rage and their frustration and their doubt. You ever been there before? And so they, they take that and they just sh shut it in completely and they don't share. They don't speak. And it begins to sour into unbelief inside of us. But you know what? I wholeheartedly believe God can handle your doubt. I wholeheartedly believe God can handle your pain. God can handle your suffering. God can handle your questions. In fact, I would tell you that real faith often grows through the process of questioning and being unable to see. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who said the quote, doubt is like a foot poised to move forwards or backwards. 
you may lift up that foot and walk backwards into unbelief, and that's entirely possible. But you will never, ever grow in your faith until you pick up that foot and you begin to walk. You won't. You will not. There are probably people in here right now. There are probably people online right now that are that are struggling with having a weak faith because they've never wrestled through these things. I remember a time in my life when I had a domesticated God, when he gave me purpose and made me warm and fuzzy, but I didn't crave him. I didn't want to seek after him. I didn't want to get to know more of him. And it was through various deep struggles in my life that God changed my mentality. Why? Because real faith grows out of honestly expressed doubt. Real faith grows out of honestly expressed doubt. You know what you'll find in that? Is that God's grace and his love never cloud over the doubt. They just go deeper. And when you begin to experience God in a brand new way, in a fresh way, you begin to crave more of him. And then at that moment, you will understand what David felt when he penned in the Psalms as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Longs. You know, David didn't wake up one day with this deep adoration of God. He had to wrestle his way there, just like Jeremiah There are some people in this room right now who need to to write out our laments to the Lord. We need to write it out like Jeremiah did, like David did. And I'm not talking about some sanitized, positive, encouraging Christian radio version of it. This, This is a song, and it's raw. Seriously. Um, hey, can you guys make sure that my guitar is muted? I wanna unplug it real quick. Okay. Um, imagine you're in your car and you just got done worshiping loudly. Maybe you're at home painting. And you just got done worshiping to the song. How great is our God. And you just got done hearing that and you're like, you're jazzed up, you're pumped. And then this comes on the radio. God is like a bear, like a lion waiting there. Seriously, what about this? He bends his bow towards me, and he shoots my kidney. I am target practice for the Lord. If I heard that on the radio, I would not be encouraged. (laughs) But that didn't stop Jeremiah. That didn't stop him from writing out his lament to the Lord. And some of us in this room need to go and write it out. Write out what we're going through. Write out our pain. Write out our hurts. 
speak our doubts and go somewhere and yell them back to God if you have to. Why? Because in this place, as believers, we need to learn to grieve over shattered dreams. And we need to learn to grieve over messed up and broken marriages. And we need to learn to grieve over lost and wayward children. That's why. We need to allow ourselves to feel the emotions and the sadness Why? Because God didn't create our emotions to be a bad thing. He gave them to us so that we could express and we could feel and then not linger there. We have to remember that God is listening. But don't stay there. Don't just write out the lament. Scream it back to God and say, I'm done. Now imagine... After hearing all of that, I'm like, let's pack it up and go home. Like, worst message ever. (laughs) It's not over. It's not over yet. Jeremiah picks up in verse 21. And he says, but this I call to mind. In one of the most profound transitions in the entire Bible, there is a choice being made. A choice. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Jeremiah is not sitting here saying like, well, I think this is going to happen. Or I wish that over there would happen. No. The turning point here in Lamentations is not a moment of speculation. God, I know that you're going to do something. I'm going to call it to mind. I'm going to call to mind who you are and what I know to be true of you. And that's exactly what he does. Read with me in verse 22. Listen, this is amazing about what Jeremiah does. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It doesn't go away. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Jeremiah is remembering something. Something that he knows to be true. Jeremiah knew he had a choice. And I believe he understood what it meant when the writer of Proverbs said this, that as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. If we have become short-sighted on our pain and our suffering and our hurt and our circumstances, we will forever be in a state of perpetual despair. If that's where we're saturating our mind in the negativity. Jeremiah knew that, which is why he began to speak on and think on gospel truths about God. Jeremiah, I believe, was the perfect picture of of what Paul told the New Testament church. He says this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's any per, uh, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. 
And then he goes, what you have learned and received. What you have learned and you have received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is exhorting the believers to think on gospel-centered truths. Not my truth, your truth, her truth, and their truth. God's truth. He's telling them to go back, saturate your mind on gospel truth, and the God of peace will be with you when you do that. Jeremiah rehearsed truth to himself. But why? I want us to look at why he said what he did. Let's go back to verse 24. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. That word portion is a word that was used by the Jewish, the Jewish people that spoke to or referred to the allotment of land that they were given their inheritance. This is my portion. It was passed on from generation to generation. It was the promised land that God gave to them. This is, this is my portion of it. Um, I had to do a study through the Pentateuch in one of my classes. That would be the first five books of the Bible, if you don't know. The Pentateuch. And I, I got to um, the book of Leviticus and... I talked to various different people and friends in my life, and they were like, you're going to hate the book of Leviticus. Like, it's just foreverly long. And there's just so many things that happen, and there's just, it's all about this and about this. And I'm like, so I went into this thinking, like, this is going to be, the the next three weeks of this class is going to be awful. Just awful. And the more I began to read through and study on my own, I, I came to see something really interesting and unique. In the book of Leviticus, they talk about the word portion frequently. Multiple times in the book of Leviticus are are they constantly referring to their portion. Why? Because it was their family's treasure. It was the prize. And it came from God himself. It was talked about. Jeremiah is telling us right now, he's like, I don't have any land. The Babylonians just took it. But God, he... He is my portion. He's better than my things. He's better than what I have and what I can see. He's my treasure. He's my prize. I need you guys to picture something with me this morning. Picture God's blessing like a pie. You guys like pie eaters in here? Anyone who wants to bless me with a chocolate cream pie? I mean, like I'm down. Think of God's blessing like a pie. This, this little piece over here, this is, this is the blessing of my marriage. And this, this little piece here, this is the, the blessing of, of my kids, my family, right? And, and the, this little piece over here is, is prosperity in my job. But then you get this gigantic, enormous piece bigger than all of the other ones, and that's God. The, the portion of God. I believe that Habakkuk understood this when he said this. It's going to come onto the screen for you. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stall. Like, depressing already. 
But Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Why? Because God is my strength. Habakkuk knew that God was his portion. But this is where, you know, everyone always asks the question, well, is it wrong, you know, to pray for, for marriage? Like, if I'm single, is it wrong to pray for that? Is it, is it wrong to, to pray for money? Is it, like, are those things wrong? This is what I would tell you. I don't believe that there's anything wrong about praying for the blessing of marriage or praying for the blessing in marriage. But you know what? God is better than that blessing. Would you guys believe that? God is better than the blessing of marriage. Why? Because the earthy, earthly marriage that we long for here, right now, is just a shadow of the heavenly love that we truly crave. It's just a shadow. The tenderness and affection that we long for and the arms that we long for in marriage are really from God when he sent his son to die on the cross for you. Why? Because God's better than marriage. Is it wrong to pray for the blessing of money? No. But guess what? Jesus is better than money. Better than all of the money in the world. Why? Because he gives you more security than money. God doesn't ever dip below 10,000 on the stocks chart. God's better than that blessing. And he provides more meaning and more security than you could ever fathom in your life. And God promises to take care of every one of your needs. So in the pie of God's blessing, God is the best peace. I want us to look back, though, a couple of verses, and we're going to be wrapping up here in just a minute. Verse 22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him and the soul who seeks him. I want you to see another side to this, though. God is a, is a tender father. That when I got up this morning, he thought of me with new mercy. New. It wasn't left over from yesterday. It wasn't my wife's mercy. It wasn't my kid's mercy. Mine. He gave it to me because he's a good dad. New, fresh. And because of that, I trust that God will work good in my life. How many of you in here have kids, even if they're grown and out of the house? Um, parents, let me just ask you a question here. Um, have you ever come home from work after a long day? And it was just, it was hard. The day was just difficult. And, um, and then someone cut you off on the way home. And then you stopped to get food because you didn't, you didn't want to eat dinner uh, or make dinner. And then you, they mess up your order and you don't realize it until you got home. And just like the day is just shot, right? And you get home to expect your little blessings to be little blessings. <laughs> right? And you sit down at dinner. And one of them starts crying because they don't want that taco. And they want the taco that the other one has. Or they don't want that juice, they want water. After you offered them water 17 times. Right? And you're so frustrated in that moment. And you cannot get your kids to bed fast enough. 
And so you rush to put them down and it's an argument and it's a fight. I don't want to wear those pajama pants. They're itchy on my legs. But you finally get the kids to bed and you're like so exhausted you don't even have time to think or function and you just want to go to sleep and you're angry and you're frustrated because you thought your blessings were blessings and they're not and they're like spawns. Like what's going on here? Right, but guess what? That happens in our house, okay? Just being honest. And there are times when I go to bed at night and I can't get my kids to sleep fast enough. And I go to sleep and I wake up the next morning and I have completely forgotten what happened. And I want to love on my kids and I want to embrace them and I want to kiss them and I want to sit down and talk with them and I want to pray with them and I want to show them about Jesus and God's word in the morning and I want to have breakfast with them. Why? Because of new mercy. New mercy. That's what it is from Daddy God. New mercy. There are people always in church that come with this mentality that when you begin to share with them, they're like, oh, that, that really stinks. But it's going to get better when you get to heaven because you have God. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm not condemning people for saying those things. But guess what? I look for good, God's goodness in my life right now on this earth. Right now. I love what the psalmist said in, in Psalm 27 when he said, I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the living, in the land of the living, now, in the present. It is not just the dead that experience the goodness of God. That's why Psalm 88 said that God doesn't just work wonders for the dead. And it's not just the departed who experience his goodness. I expect to see God's goodness now in my family. Not as a demand, but because of who God is. I did not wake up this morning and say, oh, well, my wife's probably going to leave me. And my kids are going to turn on me and they're going to hate church and hate God. But oh, well, I have God. I did not wake up this morning and said, yes, if all of those things happened, I would still have God and God would still be enough. But I look for God's blessing and goodness in my marriage right now and in my kid's life and in the church and in my day-to-day life. Why? Because God gives new mercy because he is a tender and loving daddy. I believe that Job was the perfect picture of this. If you've never read through the book of Job, go home today and start. And don't stop at chapter 20. Read all the way to the end. Don't stop when everything's awful. Job is this guy who God takes everything from if you don't know the full story. He lost everything. He lost his job. He loses his money. His kids are tragically killed. His friends turn on him. His wife, his wife turns on him. And God tells Job, just just trust me. Just trust me. And if you read all the way to the end, two things happen. Two things happen in the book of Job. God pours out more blessing on him than what he had at the beginning. And he also gets to know God in a deeper way. 
and gets to understand God's grace and sufficiency in a deeper way. Why? Because his mercies are new every morning. Any skeptics in here? And you may say, well, if I could just see what God was doing in this dark hour, then I could make it. If I could just see, maybe that's you. I remember finding myself in that place before. And I don't want to linger here long because I don't have time. But I'm going to give you three things that God is often doing in our, our doubt, our despair, our suffering. The first thing is that he's preparing, or sorry, he's pr- pursuing his agenda. God is pursuing his agenda. We can see from our vantage point now what Jeremiah could not. Through this exile, Jesus would come. The Jesus would come because of this exile. God is doing the same exact thing in us. He's pursuing his agenda through salvation. And just like it was with Jeremiah and with Jesus and with Paul, that process oftentimes includes our suffering. I believe that's why Paul said in the book of Corinthians that death in us brings life in you. He's pursuing his agenda. The next thing is he's purifying your heart. He's purifying your heart. Sometimes God will tear down your kingdom so that you can see whether you're following his kingdom or your kingdom. I've had that happen to me just recently where God shattered a dream to purify my prayer. We need to ask ourselves, am I really living for God's kingdom? What what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your... your... God should be foremost in our thoughts and actions. You are to burn with love. But for many, God is just an afterthought. A thought that you have on Sunday when you're in church. But throughout the week, he's become nothing, essentially. And you're consumed with everything else. Work, friends, hobbies, money, family even. I mean, you come, you come to church and and you tithe, and, and you're a pretty good parent, I guess, but God's not your sole passion. Sometimes God will remove an idol from your life to place himself in its place. And the last thing that he does is he's preparing us for ministry. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians as well, when he said that his ministry was plagued and troubled at every single turn. He said that the reason was is so that he could know God more. He said, God created difficulty in my path that when I finally got victory, it would be unmistakable and obvious that it was God who did the work. God taught Paul to love people by breaking him. One of my favorite authors and theologians is A.W. Tozer. He said this, you ready? 
for God to use you greatly, he must first wound you deeply. God uses pain. Jeremiah can't see what God was doing, but he chose to believe it. And Paul compares our pain to like childbirth. Moms in here have babies? Yeah? Yeah? Do you remember that, that pain of childbirth? The intense pain? Imagine going through labor, moms, and not knowing where it's coming from or if it's going to end. Would you have another kid? No? I see lots of moms like these big eyes like, nah, take that away. Our pain is like labor, but there's a purpose for that pain. Paul said that pain was transient and passing, but the fruit of that pain is eternal. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? Be honest with God and remember truth. Be honest with God and remember truth. But this I call to mind. I want you to write one last thing down. I want you to tattoo this into your memory. You cannot control what you remember, but you can choose what you call to mind. You can choose what you call to mind. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about the Bible, that there is a sense in which the scriptures teach us how to talk to ourselves. He said, I have voices of doubt within me, but I overcome them with the louder words of the gospel. If you're in here this morning, the question that I want to leave you with as we wrap up here is, what am I telling myself? What are you telling yourself? Are you saying that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? That his mercies are new? What if you're in here this morning and you're like, how do you know that to be true? What if God's just punishing me? That's why I'm in this place. Well, here's the thing. The gospel is very clear that Jesus traded places. He took your condemnation. He was the one whose body was torn by God like a bear. He was the one who at the cross faced abandonment. He, Jesus, literally drank wormwood like Jeremiah was talking about. You know that they gave him gall and vinegar while he was on the cross? He literally drank the full cup of God's wrath in that moment. Today, when I woke up, I reminded myself that I do every single day that there's no way that God could feel more inclined to bless me than he already does. Not because of how I lived yesterday, but because when I woke up this morning, I was still seen as God's son. Me, you, as a child of God, you are a daughter or a son of the king. Remind yourself of that often. That's Christianity, being in Christ. He took your sin and we got his righteousness. And if you're one of those people who feels like God is blessing you and you're doing well, and then you feel distant from God when you're not doing well, then you don't get the gospel. The gospel was a gift. Jesus in our place. So get up every morning and choose to believe in that grace. Call it to mind. 
choose to believe that because Christ suffered for you that no condemnation remains. Choose to believe that God will not leave you nor forsake you. And choose to call to mind that surely God's goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because great is God's faithfulness. Great is God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come to you in this place, Lord, and we just thank you for your truth. We thank you for being faithful even when we are not. God, I just ask that you would help us to hold tight to your truth. Your truth, not our truth, or what we perceive to be truth, but yours. And God, help us to leave this place. And if we need to get alone and write out our our laments to you and yell them back to you, God, give us the strength to do so. And remind us that as children of God, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will remind us of everything that you have said. And it will even guide us into the truth that we read. And so God, help us to be reliant upon you and choose to be obedient. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.